Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, this is Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. If we're here and it's a Monday, that can only mean one thing and one thing alone. We are here to continue our discussion of the MC2 universe. Now, of course, we have found ourselves squarely in a period of time where there is no such MC2 universe. Desperately seeking mc 2 Yeah. I want to say that where this all began was a desire to keep this program going. I have so incredibly loved getting to understand our comic histories in different ways together, TK. And that's been like one of the pleasures. So I've just been trying to keep this motherfucker rolling. Well, and I think as we came to understand the gold mine that was here, and yes, you have to sift a little bit for the gold, but we came to see the great characters. And as we repeatedly talk about the incredible establishment of superheroes that Tom DeFalco is able to do, we really did say this can't be the end. Like, even if it's not the characters themselves, there's got to be influences. There's got to be other reflections of this stuff. There was just too much work done to just completely leave it behind. And I think every time we find a new reference, I'm both surprised that it exists at all because you really don't hear about the MC2 too much amongst comic fans and, you know, in references. But so I'm surprised that we find stuff But then when we do find stuff, I'm surprised that it's not a bigger deal. So it's this constant back and forth where you really do see that I think, especially amongst creators, this meant more than I think a lot of readers realize. But that moment that I'm still waiting for, and I feel like every day it's like, maybe we'll just have to do it ourselves. That moment where the MC2 really has its big blowout back onto the scene has not yet come. And despite that, we have found some frightening number of episodes yet to cover. So proper Spider-Girl ran 15 episodes, so excited about it. And this sort of post-Spider-Girl spider connectivity tie back to the MCU, plus a secret project that's coming a little bit later on, is all going to run another 15 episodes. So it's not all exactly Spider-Girl related, but so much of it paints the tapestry that informs the understanding. I'm not just here to say Spider-Girl and the MC2 is the best fucking thing Tom DeFalco's done since killing Firestar's horse. I am here to say that the MC2 was, number one, treated very badly. Like, if the MC2 were a pop song, it would be by Taylor Swift. It has every right to be hurt and every right to be annoyed about everything, and it's going to sing about it loudly in, like, a kind of white girl, teenage kind of pop wine. It's there. But the other thing that's there is how many times the MC2 survived and then got like passed over so much of what we're looking at in our current run it was a lot of the two of us agreeing that some of this is a little connective but some of this is a little out there and you know the crossovers we're looking at today are so devoid of mc2 except for these faint traces and it's so fascinating that a universe can die completely like the new universe did and it comes back in the form of star brand dominating avengers the 2099 line can die and 
And then Steve Orlando is personally resurrecting it with his own Necronomicon. And it is really impressive. Get it, Steve? What's up? But the MC2, it's just like these faint shadows that haunt continuing Marvel. And we're going to talk a little bit about some Secret Wars stuff that shows both sides of the coin. One story in which I'm completely shocked that something of Spider-Girl is not present. But then it's the reason why it's not present is because over on some other side of Secret Wars, there she is in a full Spider-Girl story that both is part of Secret Wars and is in no way part of Secret Wars. So it's really, the MC2 is unique amongst all these other Marvel universes in how it's treated. And I, I mean, I think the example of the new universe is really fantastic because yeah, there was a while where you didn't hear anything. There were some attempts to restart it that were really unacknowledged. And then a couple of creators, most especially Jonathan Hickman said, I'm not letting it go. Not only am I not letting it go, I'm making it so central to the mechanics of what I do. And then Jason Aaron is going to pick up on that as well, that you will not be able to forget this universe and something about it is going to stick forever and become a part of modern continuity. And like I said, I think at a certain point, somebody is going to do that, especially with Spider-Girl. My dream is for it to be Rena, and maybe that's my personal dream to actually do that myself. But Spider-Girl really feels like that character, a character that you and I share in common that we absolutely love, that we bond over, that is a reference that we make all the time, is Nathan Summers, Cable, the time-displaced son of Cyclops and, eh, let's just say Jean Grey for now. But he is the son from the future slash maybe an alternate timeline that comes back and is a part of their lives. And the Summers family is really kind of, I think, made full circle complete when both of their children that they don't really actually have as babies, Rachel and Nathan, are part of their lives. And I just feel like I can believe that for Peter Parker as well. I can see Mayday becoming this person that as a young woman exists in 616 Peter Parker's life and is his child despite not actually being his child in any sort of traditional sense. And that is why I kind of don't ever give up on this vision of Spider-Girl becoming a main 616 character because I've seen it happen with X-Men characters that I love and cherish and are part of my life and my lexicon. I can so see it for Mayday Parker that I just have to believe that in the same way that Hickman and Aaron have been like, no, you guys are getting Starbrand and you're going to love Starbrand. We're going to grow Starbrand up from an infant into a full-on adult before your very eyes and you're going to love it all the way through. Somebody's going to say that about Mayday and Mayday is going to be a part of the universe and you're going to love her. We can only dream because the titles we're looking at today contain such a sparse amount of MC2 in some ways. Of course, we're going to look at a full MC2 arc of sorts. We're going to kick things off with a brief detour into time travel with the Age of Ultron from June of 2013 before making our way over to the inherent successor of Age of Ultron, Secret Wars. Now, we're going to talk about Secret Wars in a big way. There's a lot of information that is somehow pertinent yet has nothing to do with anything. And as a result of taking a look at the Secret Wars universe, we're going to have an opportunity to take a look at two Rena appearances. That's right. Wild Thing appears twice, never speaks, and uh, one's just not even continuity. But one of them is a Secret Wars variant by Alex Ross, and the other is the Deadpool Too Soon, Infinite Comic number six. Now, Secret Wars number one is from May of 2015, and the Deadpool Infinite comic is from September of 2016. Before we move over to proper Secret Wars miniseries, we're going to be taking a look at Spider-Verse Secret Wars Edition 1 through 5, which will 
eventually lead into an ongoing series that will contain our precious May Day. Now that ran from May 2015 to December 2015. And we're going to take a look at Spider Island 1 through 5, another Secret Wars Battle World event, which ran September to December 2015. It is of note that there are a number of incredible creators throughout here. Age of Ultron has Brian Michael Bendis with art by Carlos Pacheco, Brandon Peterson, and Joe Casada. Inks by Asad Ribic. Colors by Eve Squarina with letters by Chris Eliopoulos. We have Secret Wars number one with a creative team of John Hickman, Isad Ribic, Ava Scortina, and Chris Eliopoulos again. Before moving on to the Deadpool side of things, where the story is written by Joshua Corin with art by, hey, check it out, Todd Nock and Riley Brown, two awesome guys that actually met them at comic events together. And so it's cool to see their names here. Now they shared the penciling and inking duties. Colors by Jim Charlampetis with letters by Joe Sabino. It's of note that an Infinity comic is not going to be one that I can get numbers on, so I will have no sales figures on that guy. Spider-Verse 1 through 5 is all the way through by Mike Costa. Now, the pencils on all five issues, along with the inks, are by Andre Lima Arujo, but that first issue sees assists from industry legend Steve Sanders. The colors on the first issue are by Rochelle Rosenberg and Jim Campbell, while Rochelle Rosenberg is responsible for the colors on the remainder of the issues, lettered throughout by Joe Caramagna. And then lastly, Secret Wars Spider Island, while there is a terrific story up in the front by one of our favorites on this show, Christos Gage, we won't be covering the Christos Gage story. We're only going to be taking a look at the shut the fuck up, wait for it, TK, who wrote all five of these stories? You know who it is. It's Tommy D! I am so happy to have Tom DeFalco back on this show, alongside his clo- his co-plotter, Ron Friends. I almost said his clone plotter, which in the case of this show, maybe. Actually kind of correct. Yeah. Ron Friends would go on to pencil the book with Sal Buscema. Hey, what's up, Sal? On inks throughout. Andrew Crossley, who did cut his teeth in the MC2 universe, reappears alongside Travis Lanham on letters. However, for issue five, which is, you know, very likely everybody's spider song, Ron Friends shares pencil and inking duties with Sal Buscema, and that's really lovely. Sal Buscema is an industry legend who is also a terrific penciler, so it's really great whenever he gets to pencil. And of course, now we're at that thing that I love to do way too much. I've made a lot of comments about, what? This book sold 300,000, wah, wah, wah. I made all of these stupid comments about the biggest numbers we'll ever see on this show. Uh, no. Absolutely not. Um, Secret Wars number one sold 527,678 copies. I don't even know I, what to say to that. I never thought we'd get into sex tuple, did you? That's, you know, it's, it's half a million copies. So much of what we've talked about averages, like, seriously, 15,000 copies, that when you're talking about half a million, it's just one of those things. It's like, it's the thing that got me through hearing that Grey Goo was like a real thing that could happen was Tori Amos's bells for her. You just can't stop what's coming. It's, it's, you're just kind of stuck with it. You know, I just sort of figured, oh, these numbers are going to trend down forever when I make the images that cover all of the books that we covered on this show and we have our little spiky motherfucker. It's going to just trend up 500,000. You know, it is a note though that the book did not continue to sell 500,000. The second issue did see a significant fall off down to 210,000. But I do want to point out that I assume, well, I don't know everything about the situation, that issue one was probably bundled with a lot of things. So there is probably some artificial inflation of one that you see carried over into two that those readers that are buying that second issue would never have had access to it if they hadn't had an easy way to get the first one. So, I have to imagine too, there's a bunch of collector involved. Oh yeah. Admittedly, the final issue sells an unbelievable, an, an unstoppable, a record breaking for so many ways, 150,000 copies. But you know, when you think about half a million versus like, you know, 
percent. It's not. It's not the same. But you know, considering that the worst selling issue of Secret Wars sold more than the best two selling issues of Proper Spider Girl combined, it's really not much of a discussion. As I mentioned, you know, we're not really here to talk about those sales figures, but understanding the scale of the thing we're saying Mayday was left out of, it's insane. It's also important for listeners, especially if our discussion about sales is one of the few times that maybe you hear about sales figures in relationship to comic books. You know, we have talked about Spider-Girl at the height of its popularity, you know, selling, what was the, what's the highest number we had? The highest ever selling Spider-Girl was about 75,000 issues. And we dropped down to like, you know, if we're lucky, more than 10,000 for some of the really bad ones. I mean, yeah, 10,000 and then a little bit under, I think we saw some 9,000s on some of the spinoff stuff. Yeah. That's a huge drop. But when you think about it, going from almost half a million to 150,000 is a, is a huge drop off too. And wh- one of the things you have to remember is that we're not saying Mayday was at her best at 75 and then it just got so bad that this few number of people wanted to buy it. Like it was just so bad that this was all it could sell. We're saying that the nature of the beast of comic books is that a first issue, a most popular issue, a hyped issue is going to sell a ton of copies for a number of different reasons. It's included, it's packaged with stuff. It has a bunch of variant covers. There are collectors involved. There's just hype and marketing where people say, I'll pick up the first one. Very well knowing I probably will not get to the last one, whether it's good or bad in terms of quality, it just isn't where my head is going to be at to continue reading. And there's also like multi-format readers, people who want the first one to see if they'll ultimately want to buy the trade. There you go. It's just, it's an important thing to think about that when the numbers trend down from the height of a release to the towards the very tail end, that doesn't mean it just steadily declined in quality and everybody agreed, we're not going to buy this book because the quality is bad. There are a ton of factors involved. It is part of the nature of being a comic book reader and collector and, and a publisher and producer that you factor in a number one is going to release very differently than a number 82. And you work with that and that doesn't mean that you can't release 82 really solid issues that you would hope that every person that bought the number one would find to be just as good at number 82. It's perfectly possible to do that. And the sales figures are never going to reflect just quality. Truly, because I think Secret Wars number one is a great book. I don't know that it's like record-breaking, all-time greatest best-selling book. I think the hype engine is something that really is going to play into our discussion of just about everything in this episode. For every incredible major moment crossover that there was, there was a matching moment for the ultimate universe starting around Age of Ultron. And the thing that sucks about it is MC2 never got any of that love. And I think that's why we're here to talk about the pieces we're here to talk about today and the ways in which purposeful exclusionary behavior and othering led Spider-Girl to being a very expensive failure. And like I can objectively at this point, you know, we're 18 completed, we're on 19, we have a projected 30, knowing us it's going to become 55. But, you know, we have this idea of who she is and it's this unsung hero of the Marvel Universe and we talk about all the ways in which maybe Tommy D never got it right or if Ron Friends had just managed to tighten up that pencil. But no, so much of it we have clearly stated is about the editorial engine interaction of the way the Marvel Universe proper accepted or disavows the MC2. And when I turn my attention to the fact that she was left 
left out of Secret Wars. You know, yes, yes, absolutely. Spider Island, terrific. Uh, and we're going to talk about Spider Island's numbers. They're always secondary to Spider Verse's numbers. And we're going to get into all the reasons why. But just to consider that Spider Verse 1 through 5 sold 76,000, 60,000, 50,000, 45,000, 42,000, sort of dropping regularly. And Spider Island 1 through 5 sold 65,000, 48,000, 42,000, 36,000, and culminating in its final issue at 35,000. It just really feels like if you weren't a part of one of the big deal miniseries, your sales were kind of not great. And this is something we see all over comic books. It The number of things as an X-Men fan that I will read that are actually, for a lot of reasons, objectively not good, but the hype engine is there such that they sell well. I show up and just say like, well, it's my favorite character. It's my favorite writer and keep picking it up. Even though I think, you know, you could say this thing is no better than the worst issue of Spider-Girl. It's just treated differently and so allowed to kind of get more hype, keep going. Again, that's a part of being a comic comic books fan. And when you take a character like Mayday, who you see a lot of potential in, but don't necessarily see the people in charge seeing the same, you know, financial potential for, you notice these moments in which you would say to yourself, well, why wouldn't you put her there? She's a great character. And there are reasons beyond your understanding as a reader why somebody said "Eh, she's not going in there. And then that just means you don't get to read a Mayday story or you get a really kind of backburnered Mayday story. And again, the point being, it's not that she's a bad character or she was written badly so she has no potential. It just means that decisions were made whereby you are not given the opportunity to say, I'm picking up this book no matter what. So really thinking about that, the fact that sometimes it's not that something wasn't popular and therefore isn't going to sell well. It's that somebody decided for whatever reason, you're not going to get the chance to decide if it sells well. You're not going to get the chance to pick up a book that could sell well. And that's 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 other people's prerogative. That is not a criticism of making that decision. It's just, again, something that we as readers and fans need to think about. You are often not given the opportunity to vote with your dollars on a particular character or story. And not being given that opportunity is not the same as saying that that opportunity would be wasted. If for no other reason, the Marvel Universe wants... It's cool if I hop to Age of Ultron? Of course. If for no other reason, the Marvel Universe is such a big place at this point where, not to say quality control can be really difficult, but control of all of the functioning pieces can be really difficult. And to that extent, I want to talk about for a moment Age of Ultron. Now, Age of Ultron came out from March through June of 2013 and was written by Brian Bendis. Now, the actual number of artists on this book gets a little bit heavy and a little overwhelming, and I want to say that there is a prevalent internet belief as to why, and I can't say for any certainty that this is exactly what happened, but it is believed that the Age of Ultron event was originally meant to end Bendis's time on Avengers and New Avengers, but Brian Hitch, being a master of his craft and a particularly strict perfectionist was taking a little bit longer on the book than was expected. So instead we got Avengers End Times and New Avengers End Times and they brought in additional artists to help get the book out where Brian Hitch who did issues 1 through 5 was joined by Brandon Peterson on issues 6 through 10, Carlos Pacheco on issues 6, 7, 9, and 10, Butch Guse on issue 10, Alex Malik 
believe David Marquez and Joe Casada also joining on that final issue. And of course, that brings along with it a range of anchors, uh, several colorists. It becomes like a really big project. And the main idea was that Age of Ultron had Ultron take over the universe and there's like a Morgan Le Fay component. And they tried to keep this one so clean and so tight. There's the 10 issues of Age of Ultron. And then there's just a handful of tie-ins, each one called an AU issue, standing for both Age of Ultron and Alternate Universe. There is an AU issue for for Fantastic Four, Superior Spider-Man, Wolverine and the X-Men, a one-shot for Ultron, Uncanny Avengers, and Fearless Defenders. Avengers Assemble gets two AU issues, while there is an added epilogue by Mark Wade, Age of Ultron 10 AI, which would lead into Avengers AI, which would wound up written by former X-Men scribe Sam Humphreys. And, you know, this is one of those cases where it's just the same name. It has nothing to do with the film. And I'll just be like super honest. Ultimately, I do not care for Age of Ultron. I don't either. I'm always iffy on Ultron, period. As a villain, you've really got to convince me that we're doing something relevant. You got to convince me with Ultron. And ultimately, right from the get-go, Age of Ultron really did not convince me. This is not an Age of Ultron examination podcast, so I won't get into it at all. But it also is worth noting that, yeah, this has nothing to do with the second Avengers film. They just picked a title that was familiar, I guess. I've always been unclear what the thinking was of even going with that name since it really is just the presence of Ultron. There's no attempt to reset the universe or do like a what if. I agree. I think it was just the synergy machine. I guess, yeah. It was also, you know, supposed to come out differently at a different time. You know, the tie, you know, Avengers Age of Ultron, the series. So it also is so fascinating the way iterations of things can go because if the legends are true that this book was heavily delayed it is of note that Charles Xavier was alive when the book was conceived but was dead when the book was released and that is particularly interesting because that meant that his scenes in Age of Ultron had to be repurposed and they decided to draw Emma Frost over Charles Xavier because that was the easiest psychic to insert over it so I just want to point out I'm not sure if they're saying that Emma Frost has the exquisite body of a genetically engineered Shi'ar clone or if genetically engineered Shi'ar clones have reached the incredible apex of body sculpting and uh, you know exquisite plastic surgery but Uh, I think what they're saying is something that drag queens have known forever which is that if you shave your head it's much easier to just drop a blonde wig on it yeah okay that's it that's everything we need to say about Age of Ultron except Um, two things at the end of Age of Ultron reality starts to come apart and as reality starts to come apart we see the effects of this in multiple universes and on page 21 of the digital edition of Age of Ultron book 10 there is in the second panel all the way on the left a small glimpse of the MC2 experiencing the effects of Age of Ultron we see our precious J2 American Dream and Spider Girl and I think if you only have room to give me three heroes I'll take those three and again we've got Bendis who's making the reference and I just this is why I think and I I have to reference drag queens again because there it's something that I pay attention to which is the the drag queens that other drag queens say that they want to go see when they're in a particular city because to me what that says is that is a person who somebody whose art I respect that's the person that the artist wants to go see and I feel similarly about MC2 wherein I noticed that the 
people who reference it are big name comic book artists whose work I respect who seem to be saying oh that thing that this artist that I respected I want to make a nod to that and I feel like if we are just looking at these tiny glimpses of MC2 the fact that big name artists are saying don't forget the MC2 reference that's important to me feels like a statement of the fact that Tom DeFalco created something that other comics creators respected and that is really important and speaking of things that Bendis did that you know were worth respecting himself Brian Michael Bendis is frequently credited alongside his co-creator on Ultimate Spider-Man Mark Bagley with creating the Ultimate Universe now of course there's a lot of again rumor that perhaps originally Marvel Boy was supposed to be the beginning of the Ultimate Universe but Grant Morrison and Joe Quesada's famously cantankerous relationship would occasionally result in the two not being able to you know cross that finish line together and you know people talk all the time about what if Claremont and Byrne had managed to make it work yeah all right but what if Quesada and Morrison had managed to make it work and then when Axel Alonso came over an editor who had 10 fucking years some of the best years that the Vertigo office ever had doing some of the most cutting edge title they ever did that's that's a universe I'm what if it right now what if Grant Morrison did the beautiful things he did at DC but to the Marvel Universe what if Wolverine had gotten Batman forever again this is something that we could go on for forever but I think a lot about Morrison's time at Marvel and what they might have been able to accomplish if they'd had a better working relationship with the powers that be just their understanding of comics overall I feel like we really might have gotten something that Ultimates was a really incredible project I think it did a lot of great work for bringing new readers new modern readers into comics but ultimately ultimately it never did a lot to challenge the 616 status quo and I think that's the one thing I always respect that Morrison is able to do that in the last 20 years I just would have loved to seen Marvel poke at itself a little bit because where you saw a lot of the poking was in the ultimate universe and considering that the final story the ultimate story is that Bendis and Bagley created the ultimate universe with ultimate Spider-Man number one they were given the opportunity to end it with Cataclysm. Now, we've joked about the number of times the Ultimate Universe ended. There's a terrific joke, and I think it's only in the first season. It might even be like the sixth or seventh episode of Golden Girls to Air, in which Blanche goes to tell her losing her virginity story, and they all joke that, no, no, you've told you're losing your virginity story. It was on a beach, and then somebody else was like, it was in a shower, and you know, she's like, no, no, this is the definitive Blanche losing her virginity story now. And it's sort of the nature of storytelling that we have taken on as narrators of, you know, intersectional journeys, like, you know, where we bring each of our own experiences together to somebody else's. And we have this intersection of narration where we can tell a story in a unique way where we can always kind of keep topping ourselves. And it doesn't begin to weaken the efficacy of us as storytellers because we're people. But that's because it doesn't cost money to listen to your friend tell a story unless your friend is in a lot of cabarets and then, you know, pick and choose those battles. But the Marvel Universe can't keep telling me this is it this is the one you gotta stop like over edging me because by the time cataclysm hit and they said this might be the end of the ultimate universe there were too many titles for me to believe that cataclysm is a response to age of ultron which sees the actual galactus 616 galactus not galactus which i'm actually fine with i don't really care too much one way or another about it ultimately (laughs) but um the ultimate galactus trilogy was not galactus and then 
this guy, Galactus, wound up in the Ultimate Universe. And this is also a response to Hunger, uh, which is another miniseries, which was done by Leonard Kirk and Joshua Hale Fialkov. And the complete look at Cataclysm, the Ultimate's Last Stand, features so many issues. This could have never been the end of the universe. It was too clearly a relaunch. It has Cataclysm, Ultimate's Last Stand 1 through 5, Cataclysm, Ultimate Spider-Man 1 through 3, Cataclysm, Ultimate X-Men 1 through 3, Cataclysm, Ultimates 1 through 3, Hunger 1 through 4, Cataclysm, Point 1, Survive, Number 1. They tried to make it seem as though Galactus might actually, you know, devour the Ultimate Universe, but really, no. Well, yes, the story is a major turning point, you know, Evil Reed and Bye Bye Thor. This was really an example of where maybe I'm glad that the MC2 didn't get quite as much attention sometimes. It's funny because when you talk about Cataclysm, I keep going, wait, no, that was called, it was it was Ultimatum. Ultimatum was when the Ultimate Universe was finally going to end. No, no, that was the that was the other Ultimate Universe was going to end. The, the penultimate ultimate ending, if you actually... It's the anti-penultimate ultimate ending because ultimate end is the ultimate end. So that makes this one the penultimate ultimate end. And that makes ultimatum. So ultimatum is the anti-penultimate ultimate ending. Yeah. But it's also the one where I gave up because I didn't like it. And I thought, okay, well, I don't love this, but it's ending. So I can walk away. And I walked away. And then I turned to look behind me. And lo and behold, no, actually nothing is ending. It's all just starting back up again. And uh, Jean Grey just has a new name and is wearing a wig. I guess. I don't know. I'm not coming back to this. And I really did just decide that that was it. At the time, I didn't really know how the MCU ended, but I think I pictured what was happening being kind of similar to how the MCU just slowly kind of faded out and that that would happen. And lo and behold, they just really kind of kept going strong with the Ultimate Universe until Secret Wars. And yeah, I mean, now that we have done all this work on MC2, I do wish there had been some more definitive endings to MC2, but I'm very glad that while we did keep going with some Spider-Girl stories I didn't love, that we didn't just absolutely beat the shit out of the dead horse and, you know, keep trying to do a lot of series or bring it back into consciousness in a way that just absolutely didn't work. I would have been very happy to just sew up the goodbye with Last Planet Standing, which is, to me, something that really reminds me of Ultimatum and felt like a poetic, original house-style swan song to say goodbye to a universe and I would have been happy to say goodbye there. I will say at least we have that as this shining moment for MC2 and I'm just very glad that we don't have these enormous event endings happening every few years that never really end anything. Because we were promised that Secret Wars in 2015 was the end of everything. This time including the Ultimate Universe and I guess it was the final comic book set in the Ultimate Marvel imprint, I guess technically but no because stories still involve the ultimate universe and there's like some sort of weird after ultimate universe now and that's kind of the reality of secret wars that in and of itself meant that ultimate end by virtue of being part of secret wars could never be final one of the things that secret wars sought to do was sort of clean up the multiverse a bit kind of tidy that orbit and the title picks up a lot of threads that were running around the marvel universe there were a number of stories 
stories that were building up out of a number of titles that Hickman had touched, like his Avengers and Fantastic Four work. And proper Secret Wars ran nine issues. It was originally supposed to be eight issues. And what's funny is a lot of people assume that it was like the last issue got extended. Actually, the seventh issue was 40 pages and got broken up into two. So issue seven became issue seven and eight, and the original eight became nine. So it's not one of those things where like they realized they didn't have enough room by the end. This was all really thought out. And the pieces of Secret Wars break out into Time Runs Out, Last Days, the proper Secret Wars itself, which was only the main title plus the free comic book day issue. We have War Zones, we have Battle World, and we have we have a couple of stories set outside of it, uh, kind of tie-ins later on, uh, pieces here and there. But Secret Wars was meant to reset the Marvel Universe to like a clean place. And ultimately, while it was very good, I don't think it did that at all. Yeah, what it really did was remind new readers that the multiverse is a big part of what happens in comics. And while we will bulldoze so that it's plausible when we introduce a new universe that we can explain it all again without having to rehash it forever. Basically, if we want to rehash why a universe exists, it will make sense after Secret Wars that we have to do so because everything quote unquote reset. But the whole series literally ends with the Richards family just restoring all the universes. So it wasn't even that, you know, I thought what we were going to get, because you can't lose the Marvel multiverse. I thought what we were going to get is like kind of something more like DC does and then keeps doing over and over again every two years. But like 616 would would turn into Earth 1 because that's obviously our most important universe. And then we kind of spin out in terms of familiarity, other universes that are also important. But really everything just kind of reset to the exact same place that it was at with now the ability to do expository dialogue explaining the multiverse again because Secret Wars had reset it. And then also a whole thing about how we are in the eighth iteration of the universe, which now I'm really curious how that functions alongside the fact that Moira resets the universe every time she dies. Real interesting universal multiplication math having to do with uh, multiple vectors of reset that I'd love to get into. And I feel as though as much as Secret Wars, and you know, I am here to say I loved what Secret Wars did. Yeah. I love that it did really tidy things about the Marvel Universe. I just don't think it made it that like time travel was fixed. Interdimensional stuff was fixed. They told me it was fixed, but you could have gotten there any number of ways. And the story that Secret Wars represents in and of itself is spectacular. I just don't know that I agree that the outcomes are all inevitabilities or natural evolutions of what we got on page. Certainly very few complaints, but one complaint I definitely have, and I just, I feel like this is necessary to mention. We received so many stories that featured the Secret Wars universe. There's the nine proper issues of Secret Wars, plus the free comic book day one shot. There are so many Last Days books that there are even some Last Days specials, like Ant-Man got a one-shot for his Last Days story, Last Days being the heroes of the Marvel Universe reacting to the impending incursion. We saw Black Widow, Captain America and the Mighty Avengers, Loki of Asgard, Magneto, Ms. Marvel, Punisher, Silk, Silver Surfer, and Spider-Woman all get anywhere between one to four issues to react to the end of the world before the world end. From there, there were an incredible number of titles featured in the battle world. Age of Ultron versus Marvel Zombies. So Age of Ultron, back already. Ghost Racers, which is like a Ghost Rider kind of book. Inhumans, Attilan Rising. Korvac Saga, which was a continuation of the Guardians 3000 title. Marvel Zombies, Master of Kung Fu, Red Skull, Runaways, 
Secret Wars Battle World, Secret Wars Secret Love, Secret Wars Journal, Siege, Star-Lord and Kitty Pryde, Thors, and Ultimate End. And then there's other universe pockets, like the War Zones, 1602, Witch Hunter Angela, 1872, A-Force, Age of Apocalypse, Amazing Spider-Man Renew Your Vows, Armor Wars, Captain Britain and the Mighty Defenders, Captain Marvel and the Carol Corps, Civil War, E is for Extinction, Future Imperfect, Giant Size Little Marvel AVX. Guardians of Nowhere, Hail Hydra, Hank Johnson, Agent of Hydra, House of M, Howard the Human, Inferno, Infinity Gauntlet, Modoc Assassin, Mrs. Deadpool and the Howling Commandos, Old Man Logan, Planet Hulk, Secret Wars 20 motherfucking 99, Secret Wars Agents of Atlas, Spider Island, Spider-Verse, Squadron Sinister, Weird World, Where Monsters Dwell, X-Men 92, and X-Men 92 Matching Infinity Comic, Extinction Agenda, and Years of Future Past. Okay, in all of that, in all of that, in all of that, the MC2 mustered 40 pages a ser- in a series of backup stories, one cover and one mention. In all of that. Yeah, I mean, I'm when you say it like, like I know this, and but when you, when you put everything out there like that, I really am speechless. I can understand it. The, I can't believe Mayday, even if it was exactly this and Mayday was in Spider-Verse and not the Spider Island backup. I maybe wouldn't be so jaw on the floor. I literally can't think of what to say. I just, it's a bummer. It is a real bummer. The thing about that I love about Secret War is that, as you said, like the the outcomes are the outcomes. I I thought it was going to be different. I don't really care that it is because we kind of just moved on very quickly and, and things are fine with the multiverse now. We're good. It was so cool that somebody got to, somebody, so many people got to play around with writing stories and some really great artists and writers, people that were kind of getting their start for the first time, people that had their start and were getting a little bit of hype, got thrown onto a four-issue miniseries that uh, most of them really were not going to be consequential. It was just a time to have fun. If you got to write something like Inferno, which is, what if the Inferno never stops? That's never going to be a thing that comes back into X-Men continuity. We're in, I mean, like, it would be very weird. Same thing with, like, Years of Future Past or E for Extinction. These are likely not things that are ever going to come back to haunt the X-Men. So you just get to write them and have a little fun. And X-Men 92, same thing. You just get to have a little fun with things that people remember about the X-Men that look cool, that you can make some silly references to. And to me, that's awesome. It is particularly of note that Spider-Verse is one of few things that is actually really consequential coming out of Secret Wars to the pocket of the Marvel Universe that it comes from. We'll get into that in a little bit. But I just even to put May, Rena, J2, American Dream, some of these people into something that might not have mattered but could have been a bigger feature and been a little more fun. I I just wish somebody had wanted that because what a perfect time to have done it. What a great time to remind old readers and new readers that these characters were here. They existed. They might have been dumb at times, but they're really cool. To me, like J2 is the perfect example of like something that was real stupid at the time but Secret Wars could have been a place to be like, what if stupid J2, but in a modern context where we can have some fun with it? I just, I would have killed for, for something big for these guys. One, one little thing. Well, you want one little thing? I have one little fucking thing for you. <laughs> there in March of 2016, with a cover date of May 2016, was it, and just that has to do with like release dates. And so like things that get solicited don't come out for like two and a half months from the solicit. And then the cover date on the book is always two months 
later than the date it hits shelves. You know, it's periodicals and there's always so much to it that for the most part, these dates do get a little bit confusing sometimes if you go by a shop, like an online shop, they probably have the listing date. But if you go by a wiki, they might have the street date. It's always good to use something like Marvel Fandom, which always says the release date and the cover date if you need that level of specificity, right? Whatever method you use, whether it's the CMRO or this, you know, it definitely makes it easier when you're trying to cross-reference for prices on on Comic-Con. So, you know, think these things out, my friends. But so Marvel, all new, all different universe was a handbook. Hey, look at us. We're back in another fucking handbook that talked about the new Marvel universe featuring characters like Robbie Ray as his ghostwriter, the incredible Kamala Khan as Ms. Marvel, and Laura Kinney as what she deserves to be, Wolverine, as well as Jane Foster as Thor. One of the things, though, that it also does include is in its third entry, there is a list of all of the rules and like locations of Battle World, and they give a vague recollection of the Secret Wars event, but it's not necessarily you can read this and you're good. It's conveniently in alphabetical order, which doesn't make it feel very informative in terms of Secret Wars. It makes it feel very ancillary back matter, which I'm fine with. But on what is the 11th page of the digital edition, there is a brief paragraph describing the MC2 universe. And it says, MC2, Reality 982, allied with Red Queen, Hope Pym, Enthrala mind-controlled the Avengers against Spider-Woman, May Parker, formerly Spider-Girl, who called in reinforcements to defeat Red Queen and Enthrala. And then there's a reference to What If 105. I guess they're showing the first ever appearance of that universe because that definitely didn't happen in What If 105. No. But more than that, wow, I guess you can boil all 40 pages of that story down to one paragraph if you really need to, huh? <laughs> it's really funny, though. It feels like a telephoned paragraph wherein the intern that is in charge of handbooks called the intern that is in charge of cataloging the back universes and said, hey, what's MC2? And got like a five minute description wherein and they couldn't really quite take notes, so they were just trying to remember the best of their ability, hung up the phone, ran to a computer, and wrote down what they remembered. I would have to agree, because there's nothing there that says anything about the MC2. And the other thing that it makes me very aware of is how many universes got a lot of play in Secret Wars. Like, I can see Marvel right mm-hmm. above MC2, and that was a ridiculous thing to reference, but you know what? I'm glad that somebody who wanted to reference that got to but the mc2 universe you know i don't ever feel like we wasted our time looking at it i'm not like man wow we really uh we really spent a bunch of time on this didn't we i feel like this is something that needed the the research this needed someone to love it and to take a look at it and to give it another thought i think everyone else is wasting their time not getting more into it yeah (laughs) there's something really honestly frustrating about how little mc2 has survived but i want to point out that one One thing that has survived is there are two images of our precious Laura that still exist somehow. You mean our precious Rena? Oh, I do it all the time, don't I? Well, because come on. And it's because like, I don't have any, like, it's not that I think, oh, they're interchangeable. No. I think Laura is incredible. I just feel like Laura in a lot of ways owes some stuff to Rena. Well, it's so funny. I think we talked about this a little bit, but, and I won't get too into it, but you know, X-23 comes from the X-Men Evolution cartoon. She's a very different character. It's kind of weirdly like a lot 
lot more like Logan Daphne Keen, but animated. And then, you know, that's X-23 and then it becomes X-23 in the comics where the X-23 that's in the comics feels so much closer to Rena. Yeah. And Rena, like we've said, is free of so much of like the disaster that has been wrought upon, you know, Laura over the years. And Rena has two opportunities to shine. She appears on an Alex Ross variant cover for Secret Wars, taking her father's place in the classic Secret Wars cover. And it's sort of cool that of all of the versions of Wolverine that could have made that cover, it was Rena. You know, Old Man Logan was getting some big play right about now, which, you know, it's complicated because if we're talking about iterations of characters that are kind of time displaced, and I know Mayday is literally not Peter. I don't think that Old Man Logan is Logan either. I think Old Man Logan is specifically Mark Millar's Logan, who is 1000% its own fucking creature. And she's his spider bitch, but for Logan. (laughs) Yeah. And like, I'm really attracted to Old Man Logan as a gentleman who prefers his men a little bit more mature looking. I I definitely, hey, what's up, Old Man Logan? How you doing, man? Yeah. But at the same time, I don't know that I think Old Man Logan is, (sighs) Old Man Logan got a miniseries in Secret Wars, and I respect that. So it's shocking that Rena got the cover, but it's such a nice thing that a guy like Alex Ross, even if it was just he was on Wikipedia and scrolling other versions of Wolverine to do for this variant cover, it's so nice that guys like Bendis had thought to include the MC2 a few places. And guys like Alex Ross, Alex Ross, who famously insisted on drawing classic versions of characters and would not draw the updated character from the 80s or 90s because it wasn't what he felt like drawing. So that he did Rena is a definitive statement by an artist stating that he has room in his world for this character to at least exist. She becomes kind of classic by default. Yeah, there's an elevation that a classic person drawing you lends you. Additionally, there is a Deadpool Infinity comic that I have no real relationship with in any real way. I think it's really cool that, you know, these old Infinity comics are still keeping them, you know, they're still around and you can still read them on the website. But the truth is, I feel very frequently like the early attempts at Infinity Comics were never really fully realized. So when I saw that there was a Deadpool story that inexplicably has an appearance from Rena, I knew I wanted to check it out. And ultimately, it's a vaguely multiversal adventure for Deadpool. It also features Doctor Strange. But what it has that is really of note for this conversation is it has two teams facing off against each other in a baseball match. One of the things I love so much about this image is while the amazing arachnids kind of just look like a general who's who of spider characters and like any of them could be any of the characters from Spider-Verse, the seething stickers, it's Age of Apocalypse Wolverine. It's Days of Future Past Wolverine. It's even like Uncanny X-Baby Wolverine. So at the same time, when you get to see Wild, I keep going to call her Laura, when you get to see Wild Thing on the page with them, it just sort of lends her a credibility. She has no dialogue. She serves no purpose in the story. She does nothing to enhance the the narrative. It's just such a great Easter egg for people who would 
would be looking for it. And I think that this is an aspect of the Wolverine mythos that is really important. It is worth noting that as you pointed out with Old Man Logan, it's a weird thing where like he's not an older Wolverine. He's Wolverine, but old. Like it's a like, what if Wolverine were old versus like, what if we went into Wolverine's future? It just it feels a little weird. But Rena is this like, what if daughter of Wolverine, but not trauma? And because Wolverine is so wrapped up in trauma, the idea that there is a piece of Wolverine that isn't associated with trauma feels really important to getting a broader understanding of the character. And while I think they have done a great job of moving Laura away from trauma overall, but then like especially not having it be Wolverine, but traumas that should only be visited upon women, you still have this character that I think I want to see elevated because I want people to be able to cheer her on and say, what if you had the wild rage, raging instincts of Wolverine, but you were never forced to murder. You just kind of lived a suburban existence and now you had to figure out how to be a person that had the ferocity to kill, but never really was raised with the instinct that you ought to do so. I just think it's such a cool part of understanding the Wolverine family and all that is wrapped up in every image I see of Rena, and it just makes me think as silly as I think it is that we see 616 Logan be in five places at once I do get why he is so popular and why it's a character archetype and this is just that little offshoot of the archetype that I find exciting and like May I believe has a place that is so much bigger that is waiting for her which is why I'm super excited to take this nice conversation and ruin it so if we take these two things right and we take this idea of how important Logan is and that we're a spider girl show essentially discussing the bigger picture narrative of her place in the multiverse which is defined by being spider totem does that make Logan like lupine totem and does it all source back from Romulan no but and then are we looking at like this sort of the red animalia of the Marvel universe that creates this complex web of that's why Spider-Man and Wolverine are constantly drawn back together don't get me wrong there's a lot of appearances of Logan and Frank but like Frank just kind of got his mystic totem and it's death so like it's not the same thing I feel like there is something to be said that Logan is a, is a lupine totem a la Spider-Man totem. And I think maybe we might be seeing a little play on that come up in Steve Orlando's work in Marauders and the idea that mutants are actually much older than we think they are. Seeing one of the, those much older mutants who is vaguely lupine, vaguely saber-toothian. We have had a sort of version of this already come up with Romulus. I think that would be, you're not ruining anything for me i think that would be a really interesting place if you did it right if you didn't turn it into kind of logan's silly you always have more past than you realize there's always somebody else in the background pulling the strings as over the top as spider-verse was the idea that there's a spider-man for every universe isn't that silly and is kind of true insofar as like editorially they're always going to want to create a new version of spider-man and and we've seen that with a character like spider gwen 
Gwen Gwenpool, the various Gwens, like you're always going to want to play around with a multiversal variant of a character. And if that's going to be the case editorially, you might as well have fun playing with it in the story. And if you're going to do that, you can always kind of play around with, well, what if somebody was interested in all of them? That might even be the nature of what Secret Wars and what Age of Ultron were hoping to create for the Marvel Universe. This potentiality where things were perhaps not so beholden to what had become archaic rules. I talk a lot about the way we all shape our canon on this show, especially on the more live content coverage that we do on Wednesdays and Fridays. And one of the things that we all need to do is decide for ourselves what parts of that character we keep and what parts of that character we sort of dismiss. And Crisis on Infinite Earths was meant to be a chance to do that in a very definitive way back in like 1986, 1987 for DC Comics. And Secret Wars, just a few years earlier at Marvel, had been sort of the first major intercompany crossover. Of course, Contest of Champions came a couple of years earlier, I think in 82. We've covered it extensively on this show. I would rather never bring up Contest of Champions again if I could help it. But Secret Wars was really the first Marvel crossover. So Crisis is a response to that. And, you know, the nature of corporate comics volleys back and forth forever. And the outcome is that events, as a result of always needing to be bigger, frequently miss the value of the small things that shape the big ones. Because if it's all just big things, they have no consequence. You need the small moments. And I think in a lot of ways, the Marvel Universe had gotten maybe a little too big. And it was getting harder to tell those small moments. And not that you weren't seeing them, and you weren't seeing them all over the place in titles. But it was so many, everybody trying to up the stakes. It was just this endless cycle of outbigging each other that we wound up really divorced of true consequence. I don't, like I said, I don't know that the consequences of Age of Ultron really mattered that they were Age of Ultron. It's just a book I read. So I hope that as we look at these two Secret Wars miniseries today, we walk away feeling like Secret Wars was a valid and valuable part of telling these stories and that these stories added something to Secret Wars. I hope so too, but my expectations are muted at this time. Well, and part of it for me really is that as exciting as it was to see Rena on the cover of an issue of Secret Wars, knowing that the cover didn't match the interiors devastates the reading experience for me. And I was so excited that, you know, there was going to be this Spider-Verse miniseries on the heels of Spider-Verse, which was an event, once again, an event that led to Secret Wars that we really liked parts of. But in thinking about it, yeah, they did drop May off home and everybody else did keep hanging out. So I guess at worst, I could say they really didn't do anything to honor the MC2, but I guess if I'm being realistic, I would have to say they worked to honor the status of the current books that were selling where the characters were left off. Yeah, I think that's a very fair assessment. Spider-Verse 1 through 5, I definitely never saw myself reading anything called Spider-Verse, is like the actual truth of the situation. And now that I've read nearly every book with that term in it, I'm really fascinated by the decision to make this the Secret Wars entry for Spider-Verse, because like my first thought was, should I have been reading Spider-Gwen for this to make sense? I remember we had that conversation and I said, I really don't think so. I had gotten a little further in 
reading the Spider-Verse Secret War series than you had. And I just, I can't really imagine there's any way that there's something so big in Spider-Gwen that you would need it to carry into this. Which is odd because like Secret Wars as a whole, that is sort of the point of everything except the main series. Like you don't really need to have read anything to pick up any of the smaller books. And then as I mentioned before, none of them are really going to carry over afterwards. So you don't really need to worry about what to read after. Spider-Verse is one of the very few that the stuff that happens here actually is going to carry over into another series and like plot devices that are relevant to this weird little battle world story actually situate into the restarted universe and become important. I completely agree. That was part of what I loved about the Secret Wars miniseries that I did love. They were things that gave me a chance to look at stuff that I've appreciated over the years and reflect on how writers and other fans journeys ruminating on those ideas had been the same as mine. I was very, very checked out from anything Secret Wars in less than 10 years old. I was not really interested unless it was the original writer coming back. And with no offense to Mike Costa, who has a strong grip on creating multiple characters that are meant to be similar iterations of the same character, I really thought that this was definitively different voices. This was not a miniseries I would have been excited for because it feels too much like they rushed out the sequel by buying another film that was very similar and changing the characters' names. Yeah, I think I don't have a ton more to add in that case. And I'm really, I don't know what's wrong with me, but there, my notes literally say, right now, how is this Spider-Verse exactly, question mark? This was a bit more like Edge of the Spider-Verse. No one's eating spiders, sad face. And also, like, there's no verse. There's one planet. The universe as a whole has been destroyed. You have to come up with another name for this. Yeah, well, specifically why I thought this was basically Edge of the Spider-Verse. Yeah. Where they're just kind of gathering the people. And I want to just say that the art has a really great quality to it that gives it a simplicity, but there's still a lot of really valuable detail that informs my reading experience. Again, the artist works to create five or six different definitive versions of a very similar character. And I am super grateful for how hard the creative team worked. This is a labor of love, and you can read how hard they worked to make this. You know, I have to assume that the folks attached saw this, a recent miniseries that sold literally 130,000 copies that, you know, they want to capitalize on that. The first place that I am like, no, sweep everything off the table is get Norman Osborn the fuck out of this book. He was not in Spider-Verse. His name was not Morlin Osborn. So get him out of this book. Spider-Verse is about a bunch of weird inbreds eating spider people and this is many other spider stories and the whole reason we're talking about doing the secret project we're talking about doing that i think i've mentioned a few times already but you know the reason we're talking about looking at more moreland stores is because i'm a big moreland fan and it's a run that i care about passionately and i really do love the idea of seeing the idea of the spider totem can kind of full circle maybe we'll talk a little aranya something like that but one of the valuable things about Morlin and the spider totem is it's not bogged down by the stuff that really bores me about other Spider-Man stories. Like, just stay away from this one guy, Peter. Half of your problems go away. I was wondering if the Spider-Verse story would manage to pull at the last minute kind of a it's been Morlin the whole time and like that general idea that even if you do the smart thing and try to avoid this particular person, he's the type of guy that can kind of like pull 
pull off his Norman Osborn mask and it was Moreland all along? I would be fine with that. <laughs> but as of right now, I'm not sure what the miniseries wants me to take from it. I do find Spider-Gwen a thrilling narrator and I enjoy reading from her perspective. She's like a punkier Mayday. Sure. And I like that about her. I re- definitely don't care for um, Spider-Ham, you know, Peter Porker laying in the bed like that. There's something weird. I feel like I'm looking at on someone else's fetish in this sequence. It doesn't make me happy. And uh, I do love the Steve Sanders backup. It's super terrific. Uh, I like the circus stuff visually, but I don't know what it's supposed to be story-wise. And... Uh... I mean, I think maybe I'm spoiled and being a little unfair because I'm on an MC2 podcast and I'm really obsessed with Mayday Parker, but that does feel like the really glaring missing person from all this. To me, it doesn't feel like I needed the Captain Universe spider back. Right. Mayday back. Exactly. And if you wanted to bring in other parts of the spider lore, I probably didn't need for anybody to bring in Tombstone and Carnage. This made some what I felt like limitless decision potential mistakes when you have limitless options in front of you and you have to make a decision. Sometimes it's just a few too many things. The characters do remain clear vocally and mentally, but one of the things that I certainly lose is the why. One of the things that drove Spider-Verse was not the spiders, but rather the web they were caught in. They were caught in this complicated Super Destiny Earth 1 kind of thing and that made the stakes really beautiful because something that the book needs is a reason this matters. I don't think that I'm given uncompelling characters, but again, I was like really eager to see more Spider-Verse and instead, I get Freddie Mercury Craven trying to shove his dick in my face. That is quite the cod piece on that man yikes in like leopard print jeggings i don't know what he's hunting but it doesn't feel like big game no it feels like twinks i i think if this guy has a twitter it's at twink hunter and i think he's always telling you something about how he likes to have his chest hair out it just makes him feel free i don't know he unsettles me he uses that devil smiling emoji when he sends his texts everything this is a grocery list sir yeah you can't make this i'm just your Instacart person. The redesigns on the characters, with the exception of Jeggings so tight you can see Craven's boxer line, is fine. I really like this color scheme leaning very yellow and green because one of the things I've enjoyed about this book is there's a tonal quality to it. It has a sickly vibe to it a lot. A lot of the backgrounds are this sort of unsettling blue into green with a bit of gunmetal gray. There's a lot of work to maintain the darkness of many of the characters, which really when you're working with costumes that frequently tend toward bright and light, it can definitely be a shading issue. And I know that a lot of times colors don't necessarily go print digital from your eye the way you think. So this level of color mastery, especially in things like in the third issue on the seventh page, there's a really excellent bit of electricity all throughout the page that really looks like it's coming alive in a way that contrasts, but really lovingly supports the intentional dull of some of the colors. It's trying to convey a sense of tone 
internal atmosphere. So I also want to point out that in order to facilitate the Peter Porker is a piece of shit reveal, oh, I'm so sorry, that he's literally swine later on, they have him disappear from the fight pretty early on in a way that really shows that the creative team, again, even if this doesn't fit what I was hoping for from a Spider-Verse miniseries or from this story in particular, I can see where the creative team did put in the effort. There's a lot of work in the artistry that really impresses me. But again, it's a fundamental flaw of the idea of the narrative being called Spider-Verse. I just, I I love that it has a lot of artistic aesthetic that gives me the vibe of an indie book. Um, I really like that it is a contained story that feels familiar to the themes of the original Spider-Verse story that we were talking about. It just, the connective tissue is for something that at this point we don't really know what it's going to be. The references in terms of the characters to the previous story feel like they don't feel significant. They just feel like they're slotting into a place in my mind that they technically fit. But, you know, like I read Spider-Verse, so I recognize Spider-Gwen. Gwen, I recognize Aranya. I recognize Spider-Ham. But these aren't really the same versions of the characters. They don't really have the same motivations that they had before. They just, it's like everything is set up in a way that I should be here for this. And in some ways I really am. I really do enjoy the aesthetics of it. I like revisiting these characters. I just, when I compare it to something like, uh, again, I want to use Inferno because I loved Inferno. That felt like a really fun one-off story with recognizable versions of the characters that, you know, I remembered all of them, but they also weren't from something super significant to present continuity. The story was really over the top such that it wasn't possible that it could be something that would be in present real world X-Men continuity and it didn't really seem like any of it was going to carry over. So it was just return to this pocket of time and do something crazy. And this Spider-Verse story feels like this is really relevant to the Spider-Verse story that you read before. You should kind of feel like these are the same characters, like we are gesturing at something really important. And it turns out we actually are, and this is going to be important, but we can't really give you all the tools to enjoy this in the way that you might if it were taking place in present continuity, setting up the story that it is setting up that will appear in mainline continuity. And I think one of the things that makes that so tough for me is I really want to connect with these characters. There is something I really want to connect with about these characters because one of the things that we're offered by an opportunity to interact with so much of the spider crew is we're given a chance to get to know these characters a little bit more. Something that I have repeatedly been disappointed in is that we've never really had a chance to get to know the spider crew because we so quickly have to move on from every situation in these spider events that I kind of have to rely on how many of them are Peter Parker in their own fashion to care about them. And what that sometimes means is then I don't want to see Peter Parker if I'm seeing them. Because once I see Peter Parker, they lose their efficacy as sort of, you know, sort of distillations of Peter mixed in with a different fashion suit. So when Peter Parker shows up at the end of the third issue, I'm just like, sweep it all off the table. What the fuck? And I get that he used to be Spider-Man. I appreciate getting the narrative. But the big thing for me here is I'm not reading Spider-Gwen. It turns out this isn't the writer of Spider 
Gwen up through now, and that's Jason Latour. So I don't think that I even feel like this story can have all that much repercussion in a way that affects me as a reader of the Spider-Verse narrative. Now, I would love to be wrong. I would really love to discover that this is going to go some exciting places for me as a reader, but I'm at the moment concerned that we're going to be just kind of going in circles with this ultimately being five issues that takes me nowhere. And I think pointing to the fact that when you put Peter Parker in, you are automatically backgrounding the other characters is such an important part of this because it happened in the original Spider-Verse event in a way that felt very intentional. There's some cool setup in Edge of Spider-Verse that there's all these other spider people and then we get into the actual main Spider-Verse story and literally everybody says, it's you, Peter. You're the most important one. We're all here to follow you. Which, of course, makes sense because it is the Spider-Man that we all know and love whose books are being published. So, yeah, he's gonna literally, from a financial and editorial standpoint, be the most important one. The rules are all out the window in Secret Wars, and even if you give me a Peter Parker who has no powers, isn't really Spider-Man, when you go through three issues of this crew being like, hey, we're the spider people that are here. We gotta band together and do the stuff. If you halfway through say to me, Peter Parker's in the mix, you are still making the statement that these people are less important than a powerless Peter Parker who needs to be a part of this story. And automatically my interest wanes based on that proposal. Because I don't think adding Peter versus Norman really added anything to the story for me. I feel, if anything, I lost track of the web warriors as a result of adding Peter. Also, we've done Peter versus Norman. It's not really something at this point that we need. It's not something that if you say, hey, we're taking everything apart and throwing all the individual components in a jumble and you pick out whichever ones you get and you play around with them. If you say, oh, I got Norman and Peter, that's almost kind of disappointing because that's what you get in main continuity. To do that here doesn't really, I mean, like I would be interested in like crazy Freddie Mercury craving owning Craven Corp and that being the th- you know something that is like that's a Spider-Man villain but in a position I've never seen them before or something that is not just this is a pretty standard Spider-Man story just with like little tweaks here and there. All right, so fine fine, Spider-Man lost his powers and they're being chased by a Venom, I guess, whatever. Fine. I'm really interested to understand this whole Peter Porker blows the secret to Aranya thing. I'm also really interested in under like is this their attempt to make Aranya the thing like is this that moment like I know that fuck dude you know we're gonna wind up doing an Aranya podcast after this right yeah we are but I like how it just sounded like you cracked a beer in misery about the fact that we have to do that I mean, it's an energy drink, but yeah, that's what happened. (laughs) I love that Aranya is getting this time to shine because, hey, what's up? Latinx representation really matters. I never resented- I like big bug-eye goggles, Aranya. Oh, yeah. No, this Aranya costume is just fucking bullshit. She doesn't look fabulous here. They look like they're trying to dress her dour, so she's not too excited that she's in a book. But she's bright. She's got those big bug goggles. Let her celebrate being vibrant and unique. There's, I'm so tired of every 
book showing me every character has to look the same. And don't get me wrong, it's pretty bad when it's men, but it's infinitely more insulting when it's women who are treated so secondary in comics in the first place. And the idea that all spider women have to stem from the same three spider costumes is as reductive as it is ridiculous. It's really weird that Julia Carpenter wore this outfit, now is dressed like Carmen Sandiego and is Madam Web, and we lost Madam Web. So now Aranya is wearing the Julia Carpenter costume, and we've completely lost May Day as any kind of spider woman or girl in present continuity. Aranya has completely lost the cool bug-eye goggles, wild hair. We so rarely see Cindy Moon. Like, there are so many cool women with spider-associated names that they get a treatment at some point where somebody goes, this is a person with personality and their spider costume matches that personality. And then somebody else goes, but what if just another spider person? But what if we take the things that would make this one unique and interesting, engaging and one of a kind, and we take those things and we say no. And like Aranya, I mean, like not only do I not want her as the default spider girl, spider woman, and so then it becomes complicated because there's another spider woman who is not like a spider woman, but then is a spider woman in Jessica Drew. Aranya is really cool as Aranya. And weirdly, even though when she got introduced in the MC2, I was like, I don't understand what this character is doing here. And I don't like her. By the end, she's awesome. And she's part of the weird, like spider associated people like tarantulas. I feel like we could have eventually gotten widows into the mix. It all stems from her being Anya Corazon, Aranya, not from being spider woman or girl. That's for Mayday, who is the daughter of Peter Parker. And that makes some logical sense. Her being in the costume, while I would like to see her grow out of it as she grows up, it makes so much sense because she is honoring her father. It makes no sense for Aranya to be in Julia Carpenter's costume. It makes less than no sense. And especially because Julia got to go off and dress like Carmen Sandiego, it's like, well, now we should really just retire this kind of boring costume. Especially it's not like a cool it's, 90s throwback. It's meant to represent the symbiotes. Right. Like, we just had King in Black. I don't think anyone should wear this after that. Yeah. But I did like the Venom inclusion. Number one, I love seeing a panic toppled big man <laughs> crawling around in boxers like he is so broken. I'm not supposed to enjoy it the way I enjoy it, but I'll take whatever I can get. But man, do I love Powerless Peter punching Eddie Brock. And I was trying to see, can I get it to like Petty Brock? But no, punching Eddie Brock right in the fucking face. Uh, I also love the guitar moment. You know, the I've never done this before. I'm a drummer. That's the kind of shit that I'm saying. I really get these characters. Mike Costa really paints a picture of who each of these characters are. I just wish they had a better reason to be here. Also, I just, because we're here in this exact moment, what a flat top on Eddie Brock. I mean, come on. It's hot. <laughs> he looks like you can turn him upside down and scour some grout. Is that not supposed to be hot? <laughs> <laughs> Very hot. There are moments here that are fun. You point to a p perfect one. Spider-Gwen with the guitar saying, but I'm a drummer. That's funny. Like, and, and it doesn't have to include Peter Parker. The fact that it does is, is fine. Um, and I, you make a good point in terms of like seeing him and Eddie Brock can be fun. But if this moment were literally just Spider-Gwen and any symbiote where sound affects them, it's still a really cool moment. Seeing Peter Parker walk in eating a pork burrito. Hilarious. Disgusting. Really funny. There is value 
to the idea of these characters coming together. You just want to treat it like the thing that it is and not the thing that you wish it was. I agree. You know, there's little moments that really set the artistry apart. On page 17 of the digital of issue four, there's an incredible moment where the six panel grid is perfectly unaligned in a way that visually moves your eye across. What a perfect use of balanced asymmetry. And uh, I just want to, you know, say that the gutters on this book are really interesting in the way they're designed. There's sort of a warbliness to the gutters. There's an uncleanness of line to all of the work. There's a lot to really appreciate here. Man, they are just not giving up on Freddie Mercury and Jeggings every time you see Craven. Bottom left panel on digital page 18, like that triangle point that his crotch comes to is pornographic. But you know what? We're always saying, where are the bulges? It's true. Found them. uh, You can have them back now. (laughs) And things I don't want you to take back, leave it to Norman Osborn to have a communing chair that looks like a fucking broken ancient recliner. (laughs) It is awful. It has the world's worst cerebro dangling from it. Does it say Zoc Talk? Well, so here's the thing. They say that, oh, look, those are Celtic runes. Why would that be on a Caesar's Palace chair? I appreciate that. That's one of those things like every time in the first five seasons of Stargate, Daniel Jackson says, that's cuneiform, the first language. And you just want to be like, okay, we get it. Stop now. And yeah, okay. It's it's a cute moment. It shows intellect. It shows knowledge. And I appreciate because, you know, comics get dogged as being about a bunch of spider people, including a pig spider person. <laughs> you know, comics get dogged for being stupid. So if you want to throw in a little intellectualism, I'm here for it. I don't think the line lands, but I don't think it's the fault of the intellect. I, you know, I think that's the thing. I am ultimately going to have to give this miniseries a C, maybe a C minus, but I give the intent, not the content, a, an A minus. I can see there is a desire to make this book so good. The Captain UK, Spider UK reference to The Siege Perilous literally was one of my favorite comic reading moments in 2022. That was just like, oh, you get it. Like, it was such a good moment as a Captain Britain fan. And I really just wish more of it had things, because I keep saying, why these heroes? Why here? Why this emission, right? It's because it has to be Captain Spider UK with the Siege Perilous. That's how it makes sense. I wanted more of that, not more Norman. What is this? A Spider-Man movie? And that's, you know, I, I think intent, A. A lot of the character work, A. But then, including Peter Parker and Norman, F. Broadly, the story beats kind of, like, it's either knocks it out of the park or it just falls so flat on its face it makes me weep and that's where you get to an average of a C but the primary characters that appear on the cover of issue 5 these are all great characters I'm down to follow these characters pull Peter entirely out of the mix and I'm even more down to follow them you put Mayday in there I would have been super hyped for it like this all coming out of Spider-Verse calling it Spider-Verse makes some degree of sense and I am okay with this particular group. It is how you use them, what your intent is, who else could be a part of this, and who gets made a part of it, who ought not to, that really just mucks up a good intent and a good understanding of the protagonists that you wisely did so. Well, I know who should not be a part of it. I'm just going to put it out there. Charlize Theron, you know, I'd been waiting for you to join the Marvel Universe. 
course, and I understand you recently joined as Clea, but but it seems that you joined once earlier because on the final page of issue four, we get Thor of Earth 22191, who really, she's rocking the white girl cornrows in a way that I feel very uncomfortable looking Appropriation. at. Appropriation. Shaming. Yeah, like I want to shame her. Like I want to get everybody to point at the book at the same time. You know, I think she is a really visually stunning character and we make a lot of jokes about characters we would bring I would I would actually love to bring back this Thor she has like five lines of dialogue none of them are particularly unique but there's something about the way she is visually presented I really like the like I actually do like the ridiculous of the white cornrows honestly they're absurd looking on a Thor so they're kind of funny (laughs) and it's like one of those things where this art style is so nebulous that if you were to bring her back you could have it not be an appropriate of hairstyle like in the same way that like Norman doesn't have waves because he is half black he's just weird and so it's not an appropriate of hairstyle he's just weird you could do that with this Thor like if you for any reason needed to bring this one back you would just be like oh she just has kind of greasy clumpy hair because wherever she's from doesn't have modern sanitary conditions I would also just have lightning run through her cornrows sure it would just I would just make it like it's just like lightning tendrils yeah it's how it's how it grows it's that's each and individual strand of hair it's just thick and chunky we just genuinely have no idea who this person is like it could actually be a Clea from a universe where Clea's become Thor's she is absolutely nobody and I love that because even like there's this random reference in this Doctor Strange and the Sorcerer's Supreme story that you made me read there's like these two panels that feature somebody who the entirety of the internet has decided is a Nathan Summers that becomes a Sorcerer Supreme and he just vaguely kind of maybe looks like that plus he has a glowing eye and like every reference calls him that but this is a character that in any wiki that you look up it's just like shrug no clue who this is and that is so rare I just love and it. it's it's just these two appearances yeah she doesn't appear in the Thor's miniseries it's just these two appearances all said and done the miniseries sort of truncates what feels a little abruptly the bad guys all get caught Norman was always looking to take Doom's power for himself and they managed to sabotage him he's defeated it really is not Spider-Verse. Like, I was actually shaking with rage for a second. It's not Spider-Verse. It's the kickoff to Web Warriors. And if you take out the Spider-Verse from this, and if you called this Secret Warriors, if you call the Secret Wars Web Warriors versus Oscorp, fine. Because I'm coming to Spider-Verse, and I'm expecting Morlin and his whole family to be real snacky on a bucket of Kentucky Fried spider people and if you give me norman osborne being kind of norman you've taken the thing that made me so excited about spider-verse away if what you meant was bunch of spiders okay but that's not why i came to this i never appreciate a gotcha moment with a title where it's like we reeled you in with you know you wanted spider-verse so we got you reading but it's not actually spider-verse i always think that that's just such a dangerous hook to lay a story on i get that maybe no nobody would have read this if it was called Web Warriors. Maybe that's something we think about and ask ourselves what we're doing this for. Is there any way that we can hype this up and get people excited for these characters without doing a little bit of a bait and switch? Could we have made this a Spider-Verse story? I think either option is possible. I really do appreciate that this is one that is setting up a future title and I like all of these characters. Um, but given what Spider-Verse was this was not it 
And also, I'm going to just keep saying it. If we're doing a Spider-Verse story, you better fucking put May in it. Well, and now we get to move on to a Spider-Verse story that features May. But before we do, I just want to say that I think that, well, yes, I am very much with you that I feel May could have made this story better in general. But I also want to point out that I think in many ways, this story suffered from a lack of reason for some of the parts. And uh, just what I mean by that is if you had given me a reason why Norman was involved. But as far as I know, most of these spider people, these particular spider people aren't so Normany. That is something that if May had been involved would have made a lot more sense to me as a reader. Oh, May does have a complex history with Norman in her own timeline, even if she's only ever fought him once directly. But so much of her life was decided for her by the machinations of this man before she was even born. That's the kind of thing that just moving May to this story would have done a lot to vastly improve the why of all of it. I think that sums it up perfectly. Tommy D! Oh man, it is. It is weirdly comforting to be back in the May Day warm embrace of Tom DeFalco's iteration of Spider-Girl. Look, it's been a fucking road to get here, but I am at a place where I personally do value what Tom DeFalco brings to the table for his spider stories, and it just felt like everybody else was getting a chance to say what they wanted about May Day, and I our buddy Tom DeFalco and Ron friends, they weren't, but it really was their thing. Part of me agrees. Oh, you know, part of me also knows this is actually <laughs> bottom 10 MC2 stories ever. So there's two things. One, yes, exactly. Two, you know, we got a taste of somebody else writing Mayday and they hit a home fucking run from the first page of her Edge of Spider-Verse introduction. And then the next time they went to bat for May, it was a little bit of a miss. And then things just kind of go a little bit off the rails. But that home run said, to me yeah okay time for somebody else to be writing May and then the fumbles made me kind of think well of course you're going to have fumbles a lot of characters have not the best writing on every story they're a part of that's just nature of the beast let's law of averages get some more people writing May some more time May is written and we'll get there we'll get those good stories knowing that that just doesn't really feel feasible from the standpoint of editorial wanting to see May in stories and writers pitching May. Part of me is like, okay, I will take the guys who love her and want to write her doing so. Even if this is not, you know, the caliber of story I would be looking for. We saw that a little bit in the Spider-Verse story that really focuses on May where there's this aspect of her that's behaving like a brat that I really don't like, but then her interacting with a Uncle Ben variant there was some beauty there and it all wrapped up really nicely so I have complicated feelings setting all of those aside that this story in a backup spider island book is being touted as a part of secret wars when we are not going to get a single reference to the fact that this is battle world that there is a barren of whatever this place is this is really just an unpublished spider girl story that got published 
published here. And that frustrates a little bit. It frustrates that nobody said, what you got here is perfect. I just need you to tweak the script 15% so that we really get that this is happening on battle. And I just don't understand how it, I guess, came out this way. It's not that I don't get why this was the story that the team was hoping to tell, right? Like, this is kind of a general return to the MC2 universe. We have Mayday Parker, Spider-Woman, which is a major change she made toward the end of Spider-Verse. She decided that she is Spider-Woman now, and I am, you know, really excited about that. One of the big things we said is that if they're going to continue to push May to more and more adult places, they really need to be willing to treat May with that adulthood and that sort of recognition of agency. But I found the ideas here were a little too this could be anybody's first issue. If the idea that the guys had was what if we tell a story that just slots back into Spider-Woman or, you know, Spider-Girl as she was, like any other issue, great, you guys did it. But you guys didn't even do it in a way that really fit your your quality. And I'm really sort of surprised by that. Yep, this is like literally the one time where I think the direction from anybody should have been do not write this as though this could be somebody's first Spider-Woman story. Because the most difficult thing about it for me as a reader is you wind up in a position where the stories never really go as far as you want. You're always feeling a bit like something was held back. And for me, knowing that Tom DeFalco with what is ultimately his final his final foray into the MC2 universe, it just makes me a little disappointed. What we get is a sort of generic tour through her life and then the Avengers show up pretty quickly. It's not an unrecognizable team of Avengers, but it's definitely one of those we're going to use whoever situations because it's one of the X people. It's one of the X people. I couldn't even think of his name. Who is not an Avenger because he's an X person, but okay, he's there, so sure. We see Mainframe, we have Saberclaw, we have J2, we have whichever power kid that is. It's Julie, right? I think so. Yeah, I think Julie and, is with them. You know, and it's really funny. I love that Stinger's here because I wound up getting into a discussion with Kevo, my amazing husband, who is one of our, you know, producers. He makes all of the incredible art for this show. And he was like, what do you mean, Hope Pain? Him exists in the MC2. And I'm like, yeah, you know, she is Hope Van Dyne before Hope Van Dyne, but she is Hope. You know, she is kind of that character, but not really. And there's just so many things about the MC2 that just come up forever. But I feel like perhaps this Avengers lineup isn't quite who I wanted. Not really that it's a problem, but that the first thing they do is try to kill Spider-Girl bums me out. It's also like, that is such a visited trope in Spider-Girl stories where somehow the Avengers and just everybody has it wrong about May and they go, oh, you're the problem. Let's attack you. Let's stop you. And May is left jumping around, avoiding attacks because she doesn't want to hurt any of these people, but they have it completely wrong and they can't be, even though they're like her best friends, they can't be spoken down to or like calmed down about whatever the situation is. And it's one of two things. Either they have it so wrong or it's enthralling. And that's the problem. 
Um, you know, we're so used to these sort of generic mind control tropes in Spider-Girl. You know, it goes back to her first annual with Agony. This just doesn't feel like new ground. And for so much to have happened that now we have Uncle Ben, but we don't have Peter, that should tell us something. You know, I do love the Uncle Ben moment because I thought that Tom DeFalco's story in Spider-Verse featuring Mayday and Uncle Ben was really lovely. So it's really nice to see him here. And by the way, Ron Friends, Sal Buscema, I don't know how fucking long they gave you guys on this book, but you guys really used the time beautifully. This is some of the sharpest this team's work has looked in a hundred issues. Like literally, this Couldn't is agree clean. More. The lines are so beautiful. Everybody has a distinct face. Let me tell you, Uncle Ben, hey man, <laughs> you're looking <laughs> handsome as shit. Like, hey. And it's just a really, a really beautifully designed book in terms of how the visuals come together. I'm always a little bit unsure about where Ron Friends and Sal Buscema are going to fall on the, you know, kind of look of things scale. But I was really grateful that it felt like the team worked really hard to make this eight issues really click. What bums me out is that subsequent stories are four pages. Yep. So we're literally looking at altogether 20 pages of Spider-Girl. This was essentially just an uncollected issue of Spider-Girl. And to that end, I just want to take one moment and highlight a blog called Comic Odyssey, who have long been an MC2 and Spider-Girl blog. Now, I try not to use too much of this resource because I don't want to, you know, drain too much from an already existing resource. And you should definitely check out MC2 and Spider-Girl over on a Comic Odyssey. But it turns out there were a number of issues that were never really finished. Both Fantastic Five and Wild Thing had an incomplete issue um, for the sixth issue and the cover of the unrealized sixth issue for Spider-Girl is done and it's been posted. It was released in a volume of Wild Thing. There are two issues of Wild Thing that were penciled, one which was already lettered. Additionally, there is an unpublished Spider-Girl story that features like a Halloween party that never got used, which you can also find information about on a comic odyssey. So, you know, it's not shocking to see. And of course, these stories come directly from Tom DeFalco himself. If you're a fan of Brian Cronin over on Comic Book Resources, you can find a lot of this information from there. So Comic Odyssey themselves also source it from some terrific information locations. But it's not shocking to hear that Tom DeFalco was just kind of sitting on some old stories. What is a little shocking is that Marvel didn't push him to do something more challenging. When you say more challenging, do you mean in this Spider Island story or just broadly overall? Maybe broadly overall, but certainly once they came back and it had been two or three years since anything significant had come from Tom DeFalco in terms of MC2 connectivity, not to say that he hadn't done anything significant, but you know, the last time he had done something really MC2-ish was Thunderstrike, other than that one eight-page story. I get that there is something to be said about, you know what, we're coming back, let's make it seem like we never put the baton down. I do get, let's just keep making the same thing a couple of years later, and we've seen the ways that works and doesn't work. As much as I defend it as a fascinating thing to look at, Chris Claremont's X-Men Forever is a fucking shit show. And it kind of doesn't get better. It only gets weirder. And I collected it regularly, not because it was my favorite book, but because it was worth the study in how if you try to keep making something that maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, would have seemed revolutionary, now just seems kind of like, what am I reading? It's also, of course, changed by how much time had elapsed for Chris Claremont as a writer and some of his better days had been behind him. But 
I'm really unsure why no one said try and update it. Like, and don't get me wrong. I think the excellent perhaps proves why some stories are okay to be done and updating them doesn't always make new content worth the old content. But this feels a little too from the drawer. It does. And like, it's weirdly, the inclusion of Morlin becomes the thing that makes me see how true that is because Morlin is not a original. Oh, I'm sorry. It's Deimos. Oh, you're right. It is Deimos, isn't it? And you should. I should know that because he is fucking five feet wide. You know, you can tell because yeah. it's lettered. That's how you can tell. Right. It is so hard to tell the difference between Deimos and Morlin in so many of their appearances. In fact, their dad only looked older, but from the back, you would have so much trouble telling those three characters apart. I really don't blame you for misremembering him. Although, LOL, the way they use the shape of J2. Right, that's, that like should be the, the other. <laughs> yep. You're getting Ron Friends penciling a not original character who is like a weird, edgy, incest vampire fancy man. Both goes to show that it's fun when they pull stuff that isn't from their wheelhouse. And also, if it's just one thing, it glaringly highlights how nothing has really changed around the rest of the story. And again, we're getting, oops, it was Enthralla the whole time. That is the hard part for me. This was meant to be a universe that kicked back to the classic days of telling, you know, magical comic stories. And one of the hallmarks of those stories was there's infighting, but then they all work it out and they figure it out and it's a good thing. This doesn't really feel like that. This feels like a bad guy got the better of them for several pages. And that's not as exciting when this is kind of, you know, the final statement. But in that final statement, there really was room for fucking Phil and Normie to have a bro down with Uncle Ben. First of all, at the I cafe need to be... Indigo. <laughs> if this hadn't been at the cafe Indigo, this could have just been a carnal media scene. But it's not. So there really is a moment. It's digital page 20, 20 of issue three. Where Normie and Phil are looking each other in the eyes holding their cups. The fact that Uncle Ben is looking so handsome looking at them in the previous panel. It very much like if you just erased all these word balloons and just put in like, so what about? Yeah, this could be Joe's man art. <laughs> Thousand percent. No one's no one's fighting us on this. This is a nifty archive. <laughs> so uh, I do love the real, real highlight on just how Gene Shorty Zane's costume is. I mean, he's legitimately wearing Jankos. Cargo Jankos with the world's worst mini slice of goatee. The fact that we are still flashing back to fashion trends of 1995. Yeah. So, okay, I genuinely am excited that it's Red Queen because something we've always said is that she was kind of the most underutilized, interesting villain of the MC2. She had more potential because of who she ultimately becomes. And that's, you know, one of those things that we keep trying to point to. Tom DeFalco wasn't just some schlub who randomly wrote a couple of comics. Tom DeFalco was a guy who understood how to build a line and understood where good characters come from. What parts of the past are excellent to mine and what parts may be better left forgotten. The development of the Red Queen really built a character that I'm interested in. The Red Queen was always a really good contrast in this universe in which being the child of or next generation of a hero really meant wrestling with how to be, how to carry on that hero's legacy and be your own person. And the Red Queen always reflected that journey going sour. And because she is the child 
child of Hank Pym and unlike, you know, Peter Parker's child, she just could not figure it out how to carry on her father's legacy and people keep saying, this is not what he would have wanted, this is not his legacy and she keeps saying, I'm getting revenge for him. It's one of the most important contrasts of the MC2 and that as a central setup for this story is is one of the really good things. It just, the fact that it takes us a while to get to the fact that that's what's happening and the fact that the time that we use getting there is another, oops, it was enthralled the whole time is just a bummer because we've played that before. We're not getting enough updates that we're playing with ah, a classic enthralled story. We're getting so few updates that it's just ugh, another enthralled story. Which is why that it's also kind of just another Red Queen story. You know, we really want to see this character be realized, but she does become just another bad guy in this. There's obvious clear motivation for her character. She's not being flip. It's not like she decides, I'm going to destroy the Avengers now. Have a good day. But it is kind of like, I'm going to destroy the Avengers because they hurt my dad. And that's the same shtick I've been doing this whole time. The moment that made me howl with joy was, of course, when Phil, Kane, Dark Devil, Buzz, Raptor, and Lady Hawk come flying in. That is like, wow, that's what we wanted all along. I didn't want the Avengers mind controlled. I didn't want Spider-Girl trying to punch the only guy that we've thought is pretty much redeemed throughout the entire series. I didn't need the sort of, I don't mean this aggressively, but kind of like facile drama that we said was already out of touch in 1999. If you're going to revisit this 16 years later, 18 years later, almost 20 years later, what I want is to see that sort of understanding of how fandom has evolved. I want to see the heroes that we love get time to shine, not just some room to share some pages. And if you're going to have to do this in the pages of Secret Wars, why aren't we looking at Baron Hope Van Dyne? Why aren't we looking at, gosh, this all feels so weird. What's going on here? We know we come from a universe that didn't look like, because we got that in the Spider-Verse Secret Wars story. Like they all have this vague inkling that something is wrong, which a lot of books in the Secret Wars line do not give you. Everybody just like, this is totally normal. And the book ends without much of any reference to anybody figuring out that this isn't how things are supposed to be. But since we know from Spider-Verse that some people get that, why aren't we doing something to play around a little bit with the MC2 in a weird context? And we see little bits of that where there's almost some ideas to try and kind of advance Spider-Girl here a little bit. I think that's what the Uncle Ben story is. It's a chance to reflect, like you said, on characters created by other people. I do like the Deimos reference for that reason. It feels like, oh, wow, yeah, you know, other characters, right? You guys, like when you brought in Aranya, which we all thought was a really interesting way to update the book. And then ultimately she steals Black Tarantula. Um, No, you know, she steals him from me. That's the problem. Yeah. It's not from May. Who fucking cares? Nah, he's my boy. Ugh. So I think, speaking of my boy, one of the best moments in the whole book, maybe one of the best moments in the MC2, is Enthrala is like, oh, I'm going to take control of you, Dark Devil. Oh, God. <laughs> and then just kind of passes out. <laughs> That's just like, it's almost comedic gold. They play it totally straight and totally dry, but it's actually really kind of funny. Yep. His mind is just too fucked up for her. Really, I feel as though the ma- the vast majority of this title was really just about giving May that final page that 
they give her. I love seeing Uncle Ben Spider-Man in action. That's really cool. It's a really neat take on like the Scarlet Spider, you know, and we're very clearly pro old man Uncle Ben Spider-Man here. So no one's complaining. This is story. The story really could have been more special if it had more pages. It could have been more special if it had more issues. If this was like a six issue return to the MC2 and it got fleshed out and this was a smaller part of it or there was something bigger at stake. But if we're taking a minute and we're saying that this came out alongside Ultimate End, I don't know enough about the Ultimate Universe to truly say that Ultimate End was a classy finale on a universe. But I believe that Ultimate End is regarded mostly well, whereas this isn't even regarded. This doesn't even have people talking about it. And we've seen people go from non-existent to smash hits overnight, like Spider-Gwen in the course of this show. And we've talked about characters that have gone out of Vogue and back into Vogue in the course of this program. And yet I can't help but notice that this was just so undersung. It really, except that last page where the color is so, so beautiful, nothing about this feels that far away from Spider-Girl the end. Yeah, even when you factor in the elements like adding in Uncle Ben who got imported from the Spider-Verse story, even when you see Deimos getting drawn by Ron Friends, it just doesn't go that extra mile that it needs to to become Spider-Girl came from MC2. MC2 is more or less dead. So here is some Spider-Girl taking a step out into the broader Marvel multiverse. And here's an adventure by her creators that really says, okay, this character can go anywhere now. What we got is the tide came in for May and then the tide rolled back out and we kept her in her little tidal pool and we the creators are not ready to let her go into the wider world but at this point unless there's some real weird miracle she has got to to survive I don't exactly regret that this is the final moment in the Tom DeFalco iteration of Mayday's narrative it's not that I feel this doesn't understand where Mayday ought to go because I'm not here to dictate how a story should be treated or you know what a creator should do but I do think everything about the Marvel Universe everything about like the core of what makes these books tick had changed greatly by the time Spider-Girl was coming out in a way that felt that Spider-Girl was very much a last remnant of an old time Spider-Girl was looking to actively reflect on the past but within two years you had the Ultimate Universe which was actively looking to create its own future from there we saw a real desire to grow characters and focus more on development of personal narrative than development of supervillain planning. And the Marvel Universe that Spider-Girl was born into saw her as an archaic element of the engine that was no longer powering things. She was designed for a sunsetted operating system. And I'm frustrated because she's still part of that sunsetting operating system here, even though we are three and four operating systems later. And she weirdly while being designed for a sunsetted operating system is a timeless character. She's the Microsoft Word. You're going to need her no matter where you are. She has the ability to survive and adapt in a way that few characters do without some growing pains that almost make it unpalatable to even think about them leaving their nest. She's ready to go, man. She is, keep saying, her time is here. Like her time could have been in 2000 
in 2005, 2015. She just feels right, but she does really get stuck in the place that she's at as though she's so fragile we couldn't possibly. I'm going to give this, you know, roughly 22 pages. I'm going to slap a B minus on it. And that's definitely, you know, that's given them the Oscar on the way out for a performance that maybe didn't deserve it. The B minus on this is maybe a little bit unearned, but it was really nice to see them try to interpolate things from canon that they didn't do to Spider-Girl. Now Spider-Woman, she's Spider-Woman. Uncle Ben is now a Spider-Man. Peter is gone. Deimos exists. We saw them really try to understand that the engine turned without them. For that, I want to give it a B minus. I think the actual plot's like a C, maybe a C minus. I think the art is a fucking A. Like, I cannot get over what a great job the art team did on this, their goodbye story. A for art. Really, I could have only liked it more if it was one of the Todd Knox stories. But yeah, B minus. It's just, once we found out this existed, I was so excited. I was like, yes, yes, more, more Spider-Girl from the original team. Yeah, and then it's just kind of like, it's more MC2 from the original team. It's not just Spider-Girl. It's the whole universe. And it just, it's not anything new. As you were saying what grade you were going to give it, I'm like, C, no, 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 I can't give it a C. It's got to be like a B minus, right? And I mean, the art is a huge part of the high grade, absolutely. And everything that's there is good. This isn't a bad Spider-Girl story. It's that what we needed was something else. This is not a bad MC2 story. We didn't need an MC2 story. We needed a Spider-Girl story for the wider universe in a, in a little playpen that really was designed to let you do that and they just didn't and because we have so much love and respect yeah I think the grade gets bumped up a little higher if this had been one of the aforementioned young upstarts that got a chance at writing a story in Secret Wars that you know ultimately wouldn't be super relevant but it's their their time to shine at Marvel if they had written this story I would really be like man you kind of failed here because all you did was what the original guys did but the fact that it is the original guys I really give them a lot of credit I love what they do i just i would love to have seen them as granddaddies of comics as the creators of this character with this special moment that really will never exist again we might get some other event that does something similar but it will never be at this time at the time where the mcu was allowing for certain synergies we will never get a chance again to put a character like spider girl into this special situation and say hey what if she were a bigger part of the wider world and it's unfortunate that we didn't do more with that opportunity but yeah I mean we always love them we always love what they do with the character well we're gonna turn our attention next time to more Mayday but sadly without our classic creators we're gonna be taking a look at Spidey Baby from What If 20 and 34 from 1990 this is some fucking deep cut but this is kind of like the original What If Spider-Man had a kid and it's uh yeah okay you all need to understand this is very important to Nico that we cover this it kind of is. I worked really hard to track this down. It's it's really, it's a decision I've made for myself. We're also then going to be taking a look at Amazing Spider-Man number one from 2015, as well as Web Warriors 1 through 11. This series features May, and it's a continuation of the work we covered here in Spider-Verse, which is going to lead us into an even more ridiculous appearance than Spidey Baby or the things I claimed were Rena appearances this episode. See, I got it right, not Laura. We're also going to take a look at some modern Tarantula, as well as 
titles as Guardians of the Galaxy as sort of a Thunderstrike update. Then before you know it, we find ourselves in Spider-Geddon and then back in the Edge of the Spider-Verse. So things here are continuing on a pretty Mayday-ish, MC2-ish trajectory before we move on to something connected. But man, it's really interesting when we imagined this whole thing, it was going to be like 10 episodes covered everything and then it became 12 and then, you know, 15. And now we have this whole other program that's still a continuation, but it's like 15 more episodes that's not exactly required reading. But by piecing this all together, you get such a sense of what Spider-Girl was at the time. One of the things that I'm going to find the most interesting is the thing we're covering last came out at the same time as Spider-Girl. So seeing what was decided to be the cutting edge, limitless, you know, boundary pushing story that was the reason Spider-Girl was deemed archaic, everything is going to really paint a picture of how the MC2 universe managed to exist in its own pocket for so long and yet never really exist. And to me, I'm still just so fascinated by what makes a timeless character and what makes a character that you fall in love with that could plausibly go somewhere other than the very specific playground in which they originate. It's been one of the most interesting parts about this entire project and I feel like I've learned so much about defining a character that it's just even though some of this stuff feels really silly over the top disconnected like a lot of things where you're just like why are they covering this when I go through and I read it and I talk about it I feel like I have truly plumbed the depths of understanding Mayday Parker and that exploration is where we're heading next we're gonna see some big time Mayday she's gonna hang loose she's gonna slam heat might not be her world for a little bit but we're all still in it and until we return to be in that world TK where can everybody find you online you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx and on this podcast as well on Wednesdays and Fridays talking about books new and old and all the things I love you guys can always find me in those same places on this show as well as over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N you can find out more about the show at xsforpodcast.com and xsforpodcast on Twitter if you're interested in checking out our awesome YouTube content you can always look it up over at Hubs Plus Network on YouTube that's Hubs Plus Network and if you want to read my original work you can check me out at kidriotcomics.com as well as in the recently released Young Men in Love anthology featuring comic greats like Cena Grace, Joe Glass, Terry Bloss, Anthony Oliveris, and more amazing creators. We love making this show for you three times a week, so don't forget to check us out every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And until next time, keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open, keep the web of spider life always sticky, I guess. I don't know. And uh, we'll see you. Bye. Bye.